1: I'm so happy to welcome back returning guest Dr. Yanya Lalich, who, of course, is the co author of the book Take Back Your Life, as well as the book I really want to talk to her about today, which is it came out in 2017. It's called Escaping Utopia Growing Up in a Cult, Getting Out and Starting Over. So, welcome back, Dr. Yanya Lalich. Oh,
0: well, thanks, Clint. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be back here.
1: Yes. Well, just to start off i would say that i found the book personally just super helpful as a resource i consider i grew up in a cult i don't know how much you know about the bill gothard what was when when i was a kid it was called the institute and basic youth conflicts it's now called institute and basic life principles but it's sort of a fundamentalist bible cult was really popular in the 70s and 80s um so you know i i'd like to talk to you about that experience too but if you're looking at the intended audience, the readers of the book, who is the book aimed at? Who should read it?
0: Well, I, I of course, think everyone should read it, but sure. it was written specifically for people who were born or raised in a cult. Um, that's what it's based on the 68 interviews that I did with people from 39 different cults. Um, so I think it's, a, as you said, a helpful book for people who were born in a group, but I also think it's generally a good book for journalists to read, documentary makers, um, the general public to really get an idea of what it's like for those kids um, because there's so much abuse and it's so tragic and we have no resources, at least in our country, uh, for for when they come out. And Mm. um, it's really one of my pet peeves is that, you know, people can't find help and they end up on the streets or whatever. So um, yeah, I was, I was really passionate about that topic.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's a good, helpful resource. I think, you know, therapists and counselors should read it as well. There's a lot of stuff about religious trauma syndrome and things like that, that it's still kind of not really that well known, is it by therapists and counselors?
0: No, in fact, you know, I'm, I'm working now with two um, trauma therapists who were sent to those horrible boarding schools, you know, in the troubled teen industry. Mm-hmm. And we started a, uh, an organization and we're giving courses for survivors, but we're also giving, we're also having a course in April and then later in the summer, again, for therapists and social workers to educate them about what they need to know with clients Uh, who are survivors of cults because um, people have such a hard time finding help.
1: It's true. Yeah, it needs to be definitely a a helpful resource. More resources need to be out there. So in the book, you interview, what, 65, 68 adults. They all grew up in a cult. And one thing that was interesting, I was going to say, is you mentioned in the book, all the, obviously the names are, they're not the real name, but you you named the cults that they grew up in. And yes. most of those cults are still going today.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, th- there's very few cults that dissolved and went away. I mean, the cult I was in is one, but, you know, some of these cults have just been around for generations. You know, there's third and fourth generation kids. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's definitely a social issue.
1: It is. One of the themes that comes out, one of the threads, this idea of these these now adults, they said, you know, when we were kids growing up in this group, we didn't have a choice. We didn't have a say. We were indoctrinated by those that we trusted, parents, cult leaders, pastors, religious figures, or whoever it was. Is there a difference, though, between in terms of that journey, the person who was born into a cult? Versus someone who, let's say, joined a cult later in life and then left it. Okay, they're both trying to rebuild their lives. But is there a different path? Is there a different journey there?
0: Yes, absolutely. Because the ones who were born in a cult, and especially the cults that were, you know, very restrictive or sequestered somewhere, um, you know, those kids have, have no other experience in life. Whereas people like me, I was 30 when I joined, so I had been to university, I had traveled around Europe, you know, I had a life and I had friends uh, who weren't part of the group. And so when I got out, I, you know, it it took time, yes, but I I had people from my past I could go to and say, what was I like before (laughs) and stuff Uh like that. Whereas the kids coming out, if that's the only thing they knew, I mean, that's what makes the adjustment to the, quote, outside world so difficult, as well as there will undoubtedly be developmental difficulties. They don't go through the same type of, you know, stages of development that Erickson talks about, Eric Erickson, because they they're everything's figured out for them or told to them. Right. So they don't get to learn, you know, when we were kids, you know, we, we learned coping mechanisms on our own. If we got beat up on the playground or if we, you know, did good in school, or if, you know, something happened at home, we figured out our ways on our own or with our siblings or our friends. Um, And so those kind of coping skills Children and cults don't don't have necessarily, and as well as other developmental skills, and and you know just ed, take education. I mean, so many of these groups homeschool, which is why I really am against homeschooling. Um, and most of the time, they just teach the leaders nonsense, right? They don't uh-huh. do formal education. Um, and even if kids go to public schools, most times they have to come straight home and not engage with people there, or they're looked at as weird because everyone knows they're in a weird group, right? So there are a lot of issues that they have coming out that that those of us who joined as adults don't have. Um, mm. which is why we're the the organization I'm with now or the oh, it's not a huge, just three of us, but we're now doing courses as well for people who were born and born or raised in a cult because the issues are different. Mm,
1: they really are. That's something I've learned growing up in a cult. I mean, I wasn't in a, it wasn't like FLDs or something like that, but it was a, it was a group that, you know, I was talking about this Bill Gothard, he led seminars all over the country and it was huge in the seventies and eighties. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the issue was that his teachings in terms, in terms of how he interpreted the Bible you had all these families and it's still, it's still very much a thing as well as the homeschooling you talked about. Um, They, they raise the kids according to these so-called biblical principles and the parents run their marriages that way. So it's almost like you have mini cults in the home, you know, even though he wasn't, I never met him. I never, I mean, I went to a couple of his seminars, but you know, so he had these little mini cults, family cults all across the country. And nonetheless, we were still indoctrinated within that system.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why I say, when, you know, through the indoctrination program, if, as you keep internalizing all the beliefs and practices and thoughts and ways of behaving of the cult, you, you become like a little microcosm of the cult. You know, that's mm-hmm. where my idea of bounded choice comes in.
1: Right, and I would love to get into that, but I'm thinking maybe we should step back. Is there a working definition of the term cult? Because I know that's a that's a bone of contention. I recently read Rick Allen Ross's book "Cults Inside Out," and he go, he goes into that same discussion. You know, about some groups would say no, it's it's a new religious movement. It's not a cult. I don't like the term cult. Is that yeah. a good descriptor of these groups?
0: Well, I think it's important. I think it, you know, it has uh, historical significance. It's understood by sociologists and psychologists. And uh, there are some scholars, mostly uh, scholars of religion, who have come up with this new religious movement idea. Um, And we call them cult apologists because they say there's no such thing as cults. We shouldn't use the word cult. We shouldn't use the word brainwashing and they try to sort of whitewash everything. And I think that's, that's dangerous. I mean, we call gangs gangs. So let's call cults, cults, you know, Mm -hmm. that's, that's what they are. And certainly they're not all religious. So saying this term new religious movement, doesn't at all address the jillions of other types of cults.
1: Mm -hmm. Is there any element, you know, you hear the word destructive cults, and you you could go to the obvious examples, the Manson family, the om Shinrikyo, the the cults that you know committed suicide or something like that. Is that term destructive cult though? Is that another descriptor that we would add to this idea of a cult or a high demand group?
0: Well, I think you know, I think there is a, a purpose for that descriptor. Um, you know, I believe that cults exist on a continuum from you know extremely harmful to. Somewhat more benign. I don't think any of them are truly benign because part of part of being a cult is that you are taking away uh, people's autonomy in a sense, right? Their decision making power. They're, um, you know, they're having to follow certain types of beliefs and rules and regulations and behaviors. So even if it's mild mannered, I still don't think that's good for anybody to not be an independent human being, you know, having mm-hmm. your own autonomy. So, yeah, that kind of group may not, you know, poison the neighbors or do harmful criminal things, but I, I still don't think it's a healthy environment.
1: Mm-hmm. And as an example, even a more seemingly benign group like Jehovah's Witnesses, okay, they're not out there murdering people. However,
0: there's they are a have, lot of sexual abuse of children. <laughs> exactly.
1: Sexual abuse. And then they have this blood transfusion rule. Exactly. How many tens of thousands of certainly children and possibly adults have died needlessly simply exactly. because they were not allowed to have a blood transfusion. So th- in my book, that makes them a destructive cult. Yes.
0: You know? And also, I, I think the 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 one of the their very extreme. Behaviors is the shunning that they do uh. of people who leave. And so, you know, people leave and then they never see their families again. They don't even know if their parents died or something like that. I mean, that that kind of shunning is very destructive and very harmful. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think a lot of people think, oh, these are just these nice little old ladies on the street corner or knocking mm-hmm. on your door. But it, it, it's really not a good organization. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. A lot of the belief system. Well, is it all about religious beliefs? Because that's, that's kind of the first port of call. People think of a religious cult, let's say. But can a secular movement or group be considered a cult? Are there other models, if you will, of cults that are outside of your typical religious group?
0: Well, sure. I mean, Nexium was not religious. Manson wasn't religious. The group I was in wasn't religious. We were political. Hmm. So there are political cults, therapy cults, business cults, self-help cults, the multi-level marketing cults, the, you know, it, it 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 can happen in any framework. It's not it's it's not religion or the abuse of religion that makes something a cult. It's the structure and the behaviors.
1: Mm-hmm. So you've got this model. You call it the bounded choice model of cults, which I find very helpful. You describe it as a self-sealing system. And I've asked you this question before, but I think this is a really great uh, question to ask again, how does that self-sealing system work? How is that important for the life of a cultic group and the sort of continuation that allows it to go on year after year and generations after generation?
0: Right. So, so for me, the self-sealing system, what that means is that the, the group or the organization, the cult, whatever, is, is basically closed in on itself, which means that it's closed to outside ideas or outside belief systems. It believes that it is the only way, you know, whether that's religious or secular, it is the only way, it has the only answer. And you have to stay within that in order to attain whatever it is they're promising you. So by being closed in, in that way, and I think this is especially important for children is that you don't have any, I mean, this is just one of the factors that's important is that you don't have any reality checks, right? Normally in life, um, you know, you, you have a jillion different things that you can look to to question something or to figure something out, right? You have friends, you have people of different political persuasions or different religions, Uh, you have, you know, the radio, the TV, the internet, you have all these ways that you can check something out, right? So, if you're, you know, I always use this example if you're dating someone and you're not really sure, you can say to your girlfriends, you know, what do you think of this guy? You know, is he okay? Mm -hmm. And they'll say, oh no, he's an absolute loser, get rid of him, right? Right. So you have these reality checks, right? Whereas in a cult, you don't have that. Everything is the same. Everybody's saying the same thing. Everybody's telling you the same thing. And, um, and so that's what, for me, makes it this closed system. Um, and mm-hmm. that's dangerous because it's not allowing you any type of independent thinking.
1: Mm-hmm. And then I think you mentioned this before when I talked to you last time, isn't it also the element that, like you talked about shunning when you when or if you do leave the group, you turn around and it's closed, it's sealed off against yes. you. You can't go back in. I mean, you you some people do go back in, but they're shunned and, and everything else. So in that way, it's also self-sealing, isn't it?
0: Yes. In fact, I mean, we had people, for example, in the group I was in that that either left or were expelled, mm. and then they sort of would have to beg to come back in. And then of course they were criticized, they were given the most lowly positions, they were kind of these, you know, yeah, weirdo- pariahs. yeah, pariahs that you couldn't trust right away. And so, you know, that was even a more painful process for them. So yeah, that closed system is, is very effective.
1: Mm. I just read an article the other day, someone, it was on the Roy's report, which is a kind of an evangelical watchdog report. And she talked about a church in Los Angeles, Dr. John MacArthur, it did the same kind of thing. And I was thinking of your book, a woman who wouldn't accept her abusive husband back into the home. And she, would, she was shunned by the church, you yeah. know? Right. And it turned out he later, he, he admitted he had sexually abused the kids as well as verbally and, and physically abused them. And yet she was the one who was shunned and shamed and everything else. So right. I was thinking, oh, I was going through your book. This is exactly what you're talking about in an <laughs> evangelical fundamentalist church.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, it happens. So this is an interesting model. You've got four elements to your bounded choice model. Number one is a transcendent belief system. Number two, charismatic authority. Number three, systems of influence and systems of control, which I find very helpful. Uh, I'm thinking, okay, can we look at each one of these in detail? So what exactly is, what do you mean by the transcendent belief system? That's kind of the first protocol, isn't it?
0: Right, right so that's basically you know the ideology of the group or the the leader you know what the leader brought to whoever and it got his first recruit so what i mean by a transcendent belief system is that it gives you the answer to everything right to the past the present and the future so it completely reframes your life in a way right because it it's it's this All or nothing, all encompassing belief system. And once, when something is all or nothing, that means that the ends justify the means. And once you have an organization or group, whatever, that believes that the ends justify the means, that means that anything goes, right? You can be asked to do anything because it's for our greater cause, right? Mm. And so that leads to very dangerous situations. You know, that leads to people doing things against their own moral code that they brought into the group if they had one. Um, And so you eventually kind of take on the immorality of the leader uh, through this all or nothing system. Um, And then the other aspect of it that's important is that belief system requires that you go through a personal transformation. You're not accepted for who you are, right? You have to change, right? You have to become this perfect person to be on the path to whatever they're offering you. And so that's the indoctrination process. And that's where the change occurs.
1: Mm-hmm. That's what struck me reading through the book, you say something like, it's not just they, they don't just think that their message is true. They say it's the that's truth, <laughs> exactly. it's the truth, we're going to change the world, everyone needs to know this message. And you think, okay, I can I can see the attraction to someone who might be in a, in a particularly vulnerable spot. I want to get involved in something that's bigger than myself that is going to change the world. And as right. you say, you come into the system and then you go, wait a minute, I've got to change. And there's where they get you into that process of, you know, the indoctrination and everything else. Right. So right. true. And, and what, what um, element is it where you would say, OK, this compares to Robert J. Lifton's uh, category of sacred science, because that's where I thought when you were talking about transcendent uh, mm-hmm. belief systems, every mm-hmm. group, every cult has its sort of sacred science. It's its sacred core text. And that's right. what that's one of the main sort of tenets of a lot of these groups, isn't it?
0: Yes, it is. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, sacred science in a way, is an unfortunate word, because it has nothing to do with science. Exactly. (laughs) But the sacred is the important word there that, you know, like you said, it is the truth with capital T's. Um, Whereas, you know, healthy religions or or healthy organizations, you know, I might be Catholic, but I know that there are other religions, someone else is a Protestant or someone else is a Presbyterian, you know, I don't say they can't exist, right? I might think mine's the best, but it's—I mm. I know that it's not the only one, and mm. that's the difference.
1: Yeah, and you can see that. I mean, for example, Scientology's got Dianetics, Christianity's got the Bible, uh, Islam's got the Quran. I mean, every group—you know, the Mormons have the Book of Mormon and other doctrine, you know, doctrines and covenants. Every group's got that sacred science, and that forms that transcendent belief system. And right. it must be that attraction, isn't it? We, we've got Dianetics, we've got this and that, and the other thing that will change the world and you know, right. we're going to clear the world or whatever right. the system is.
0: Yeah, we had Marx and Lenin, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> And we thought our leader was the new Lenin. So there you go. <laughs> oh,
1: amazing. <laughs> yeah. All right, so you've got a transcendent belief system. Then you've got number two is charismatic authority. And I think immediately you go to like the charismatic, typical cult leader Mm -hmm. But you talk about, um, what about if a cult leader is, is dead and gone? Okay, like L. Ron Hubbard, he's no longer around, yet Scientology didn't collapse. What is it about that charismatic leader and that charismatic authority that kind of forms a nucleus of your typical cult group?
0: Yeah, the charismatic authority, I mean, the the way I see it is that, you know, cults, some one person is going to start this thing. It's, you know, this guy or woman who comes up with this idea and recruits a few people and people attribute charisma to that person, and that sets up kind of a power imbalance in the relationships. But any cult worth its salt is also going to set up a hierarchy of leadership, right? There are middle-level and lower-level leaders, um, and those people function with what we call charisma by proxy. Um, You know, the leader, in a sense, has given them his, his or her blessing that that they can they can carry out the orders they keep the thing going they check up on people they do whatever it is they're assigned to do and so and they're able people need to listen to them because they're in a sense functioning at the behest of the charismatic leader so they they in a sense are charismatic as well right it kind of transfers Mm -hmm. that way so that when and and as you say, many groups are big. You, you never see the leader. You never meet the leader. Yet there is this person who's held up as the be-all and end-all, right? And so if they've set up a good enough structure, when that leader dies... There are going to be people who can take over and keep the organization going. And so that's why we do have these groups that have gone on for decades, have gone on for, you know, as I said, generations and generations. Um, so for example, the children of, uh, I'm sorry, the Jehovah's Witnesses that we were just talking about, their original founders died a long time ago. Now they have this governing body of 10 white men and, hmm. you know, they, they function as quote the charismatic authority
1: mm-hmm. yeah, exactly i mean joseph smith's long dead yet right. the mormon church carries on and all of its different offshoots and strange branches like the flds and you know right. all that yes. warren yeah. jeff's father is dead but yeah he continues to run the flds call even from prison apparently no, i think on. yeah and i think isn't keith ranere trying to do the same thing from from yes, within so- prison
0: Yeah, Keith, you know, there are still there's a handful, more than a handful of loyal followers, both here in the States and also in Mexico. And um, they're working to help him with his appeal of his conviction. And they say, you know, everything that happened was voluntary. These women agreed to have these brands put on them. And um, they're all over the Internet and social media and just Mm. trying to carry on with Ranieri's words and Mm. still honoring him.
1: Yeah, same thing with FLDS. And I know Warren Jeffs has been issuing pronouncements from his prison cell, and right. people have still fallen. We'll be right back in just a minute with the second half of my conversation with returning guest Dr. Yanya Lolich as we continue to look at this issue of escaping utopia. What's it like to not only grow up in a cult, but to get out? And then try to rebuild your life. We're going to look at the elements of cult leaders, some more of these sort of characteristics that seem to be universal, and also this uh, these issues of her bounded choice model of cults. And I think you'll find that those four elements of her bounded choice model can be very helpful because, again, those are also universal. Almost every cultic group, and it doesn't have to be a religious group, any high-control, any high-demand group, can display those four characteristics of this bounded choice. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit in more detail as well. Before we get into the second chat, though, I wanted to mention really quickly what's coming up here in the next few episodes. I've had a chat with Catherine Stewart about an article that she came out with recently in the New Republic Journal. And that is about what's some of the new developments, what's going on in the Christian right And then, I promise you, I'm working on this episode as well. I had a chat recently with Rachel Hunt from Recovering from Religion, and we had a really good conversation about not only her work with the RFR, but how you can get support from the RFR, as well as become involved in that great organization, as well as the Secular Therapy Project. So they are offering some really good resources for those of us who have left religion behind, and that's basically what I'm doing here also with Dr. Janja Lalic giving you resources, ways to empower yourself, ways to sort of like rebuild your life in terms of identifying how we were controlled, how we were sort of manipulated in terms of these cultic sort of psychological tactics and other ways that they use to indoctrinate us and control us and really suppress our authentic self. So that's all part of the journey of rebuilding your life after you get out of a cult or a fundamentalist religion or any sort of high demand, high control group this is what you need to do. Education is probably one of the best things you can do. And then speaking of education, we have our next Mind Shift Zoom call coming up next month in the month of April. We've got Dr. David DeAndre dropping in. In fact, we just had a really good conversation just last night as I'm recording this now with Michael from the Religious Addicts Anonymous blog. In fact, you can take a look at that. If you do a search on Religious Addicts Anonymous, you'll find his group. We had a really good conversation about what is religious addiction, how you can recover from it, and you can actually be a part of their group calls that they do every, I think it is Thursday night. So if you go on the RAA blog, you can find out more information about how you can be a part of that if... Any of this issue of religious addiction seems to fit you. So these are really great benefits that you get for being a Patreon supporter of the show. As always, the links to that are in the show notes if you want to support the show financially and become part of our Closed Mindship Podcast Facebook group community. Anyway, let's get on back into the second half of this chat with Dr. Yanya Lalic as we keep looking at this issue of escaping utopia, rebuilding your life after growing up in a cult. What is it about, though, this element of narcissism? Because that tends to be another hallmark of cult leaders. You've got this narcissistic personality disorder. What is that about? What are they in it for? Why does a person start a cult, let's say?
0: So I I think that 99, 98, whatever percent of the time, it's someone who's basically a a kind of a con artist, Mm -hmm. um, a narcissist, uh, somebody who who wants to have power, you know, so they do it often for money, sex, or power, the three biggies. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And um, being a narcissist means that they're not like you or me, everything revolves around them, you know? And so that's why they, do what they do. That's why there can be no criticism. There's no holding them accountable. Um, so that's, you know, that's certainly an important part of it. I mean, obviously most cult leaders aren't going to submit to psychological testing that we can have some psychiatrist who says, yes, this person has narcissistic personality disorder But we can certainly see by their behaviors. You can, you know, check off the lists of, uh um, manifestations of that kind of disorder. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah, that's a, um, a very typical. And then many of them also have traits of, you know, of, of psychopathy or sociopathy, especially when they become very harmful and dangerous, like Keith Raniere, you know, uh-huh. uh, or other ones where things got really harmful uh, those people are have a little bit of psychopath in them. Not everyone Mm. does, but many of them do. And often when we look back at their childhoods, we see exactly, um, you know, the kinds of things that baby psychopaths do killing animals, you know, that kind of thing.
1: Mm. Interesting. So the last two categories you've got are systems of influence and systems of control there obviously there's a difference between those two categories what is it about systems of influence because does that go back to your comment about the transcendent belief system you have to change in order to become a productive cult member whatever these are these the ways in which they can do it because it seems to me what struck me about systems of influence it's not necessarily overt ways in which the cult controls you it's almost like you have to become self-policing in your Mm -hmm. own behaviors your thoughts And all those kind of things, I developed. I think religious scrupulosity, and I see it now as that was a form of self-policing as a kid growing up in this thing. I had to be in charge of myself so I wouldn't, you know, commit a thought crime against God or whatever it was. Is that Mm -hmm. kind of the way it works? These are more less less over means of control.
0: absolutely. Absolutely, the systems of control are basically the the overt rules and regulations, you know, maybe what you can wear, what you can eat, who you marry, where you live, et cetera, et cetera, right? They're the very obvious things. Whereas the systems of influence are more subtle. They're basically the social psychological uh, techniques that prey on your emotions, that prey on your guilt and shame and fear and love and those things. And so Um, And, and some of that is, you know, again, those of us who joined as adults, we're used to that we're, you know, we maybe we're used to being guilt tripped, or we're used to being ashamed. And so it seems normal, you don't realize that this is a coordinated plan, getting you to change. And so I believe that the uh, systems of influence, these social psychological techniques are far more effective than the rules and regulations, right? Because I mean, that's obvious, okay, I have to, you know, wear orange robes, because I'm in, you know, Rajneesh is called, but the things that are really preying on your emotions and pressuring you to change, and along with the peer pressure, you know, that's where the indoctrination really hits home. And that's where the change really happens.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could you could punish and abuse people. But it's when you become self-policing, that's when it really right. obviously yeah. has, has hit yeah, home. You've
0: got that voice in your head saying, uh-uh, no, no, right.
1: Exactly. I, I can yeah. point to so many examples. I was just telling someone the other day about when I was probably 13 or 14, I was at a Christian summer camp as a kid. We went every summer, and some friends of mine wanted to sit in their car and listen to a rock and roll song. <laughs> oh, I know. It was by Journey. You know, Don't Stop Believing by Journey. And which is ironic because now the keyboard player is married to Paula White Kane, who is a complete, you know, prosperity (laughs) gospel Trump advisory council and all that. But I felt so terrible about sitting in the car listening to this rock and roll one rock and roll song. I got out of there and basically as soon as I could, I got out of there and ran away. And I'm thinking now. That's that must have been a result of the systems of influence. I policed myself because I knew that rock and roll was evil and of the devil and everything else. And I had to get out of there. Nobody told me to do that. But it was all the years of indoctrination.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly how it works. And it's the and that's why, you know, especially the cults that really grow big and have people all over the country or all over the world. I mean, you don't have to be you don't have to have the cult leader or even any leadership right there with you because you know exactly what you're supposed to do. Um, mm-hmm. And you berate yourself and you beat yourself up. And because of all the years of training that was probably done overtly, you know, uh, uh, criticism sessions or confessions or whatever they were called in every group, um, you know, kind of trained you to learn how to beat up yourself when mm. you see you're crossing the path somehow. Mm.
1: And I know you do go into Lifton's categories. I mean, it struck me again that, you know, he talks about the demand for purity and then the yes. cult of confession, which exactly. are two of his whole, same kind of thing as slots right into your model, doesn't it? The cult right. places a, a a standard on his followers that it's impossible to achieve. And then mm. they inevitably fail. Then they have to turn around and confess their sins or whatever right. it's called and right. then you have that guilt and shame mechanism, which is so effective for right. controlling right. people, isn't it?
0: Right. And the peer pressure. I think mm. the peer pressure isn't given enough credit for how effective it is, because, you know, as we grow up, we, we respond more to our peers than to, say, our parents, whatever. Right. Right. So, you know, in most groups, when you're a new member, you're going to have somebody who's like, you're in our group, we call them the one help, you know, they're the person who helped you. Um, So they kind of guide you along, and then they report back to leadership, if you're having doubts about things. And then in our group, we had to write not only write self-criticisms, but we had to turn in other people if we saw someone who disobeyed in some way or Mm. broke a security rule or something. So you're constantly watching each other and spying on each other and reporting on each other. And so that peer pressure is also what keeps you in line.
1: Amazing how it works. It's so effective, isn't it? And that's the thing about your model is that you talk about this in the book. You say that it's sort of universal. I mean, every cult is obviously slightly different in terms of beliefs and practices and things like that. However, you can take these four categories and mm-hmm. you can place them on top of virtually every high Best. demand group. Why is that? Why is the this? It seems to be a universal truism that these kind of groups follow into these four basic categories.
0: Well, I think it's, um, as I say in Take Back Your Life, I guess these cult leaders go to the cookie cutter messiah school. (laughs) And (laughs) I think it's, you know, having that kind of absolute power and no checks and balances is going to set up this this very closed structure. And, you know, I think it's terrific what you're saying about the four characteristics, because in the, you know, I'm doing these online courses now for survivors of cults Mm. and And other types of abusive relationships. And and a lot of what we do is give them homework. And I will say, take these four features and underneath each one, write how your cult did that. And that's been so helpful to people because they can see it there in black and white. Because often when you get out of a group, and I don't know if you experience this, you know, everything's just kind of a mush, Uh especially if you were in for a long time. It's like, what the hell just happened? You know, like, who am I? So by I'm very much into writing things down. I think it prints in your brain a little better that way, but by seeing it in black and white, you know, having this map and going, Oh my God, no wonder I did what I did. Look at the power of this system. Um, and so I, that, that's a, a very, uh, and you can use Lifton's eight themes as well for the same thing, but I think it's a really helpful uh, recovery tool.
1: Mm-hmm. I would say that. Yeah. That's a, that's a question too. These people that you interviewed, What did you find in terms of the more effective ways they found to rebuild their lives? Because like you said, for me, it was education, reading books like Lifton, reading your books, reading um, Marlene Winnell's Leaving the Fold, things like that. And what was striking about it was when I found out how I was controlled, how I was manipulated, how I was indoctrinated, I was able to name the actual tactics and the psychology. What about some of the people you encountered? How did they rebuild their lives? What were some of the more difficult things they might have encountered?
0: Well, I think, you know, one of the more difficult things is finding a therapist or someone to help them because most therapists don't get it. And so they want to, you know, talk about other things and they and, and it's really important. I think one of the most important things when you get out is to do this kind of what we call psychoeducation, which is, you know, reading the the primary literature and you know doing these kinds of exercises where you really dissect and take apart what happened to you because then you have words for it and then you have a framework and so that wow. can really help the healing process. So certainly one difficulty was finding someone who could help them with that kind of thing who really who wanted to, unpack the cult first before anything else. Otherwise you're still looking at your life through the eyes of the cult, right? Through the mind of the cult. So you've got to get rid of that first. Uh (laughs) So I think that was one thing. I mean, I think for some kids, especially um, not having had any education or a good education, I think one of their, one of the main struggles was when they got out in the world, like how to, you know, how to get an education, how do you do that? They often don't know In our, you know, here we have the GED, which makes up for a high school diploma. Um, You know, sometimes people come out and they don't even know their real names or they don't have a birth certificate. You know, so how do they go get a driver's license? How do they go do anything? Um, So all of those very practical issues um, become overwhelming in a way. And I I think what's helped people is finding other people who left the same group you were in um, so that they can kind of tell stories, laugh, cry together, you know, be a support to each other. Um, You know, there's some groups that have come together that way and help people with scholarships to go to college and things like that. But, you know, there were a lot of mistakes that people made, not their fault. But I remember there's one story in the book of the woman who spent thousands of dollars getting some kind of training and then realized the whole thing was bogus, right? Uh Because she didn't know how to check out if something's really accredited, right? So there's all these natural skills um, that, that, people born in a group often don't have. And so they, they encounter that, you know, Um, sometimes they have nowhere to go, you know, they end up couch surfing, because they don't know if they have family on the outside who they can go to, you know, Uh or there was the one guy who went to his grandparents, but they made him work, you know, they're like, sure, you can live here, but you've got to work. And the guy, you know, had grown up in a cult for like 18 years, like he wasn't ready to go to work just yet. you Uh um, You know, there's just a lot of difficulties for people, um, who were born in. And, and I, and I just have so much admiration for the, for those who make it. And, Mm -hmm. and I feel horrible about the number of suicides because there are a lot of suicides.
1: It's shocking, isn't it? I remember talking to a woman several years ago. She was one of, actually, she was one of Warren Jeff's wives. She was like his 65th wife or something. She literally escaped she had to unscrew screws from a window frame and got out, ran out of a, a bedroom. Anyway, she now has actually took it, taken over one of the houses that he used to own, and she helps right. women get out of the FLDS. And like you said, her goal is to help them simple things like, you know, you talk about this in the book as well, how to register a car, how to get a driver's license, all the right. things that most of us just take absolutely for granted. They don't know. They have no marketable skills in so right. many cases, don't they?
0: Yeah. 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 So, yeah, it's, you know, and I've, I've really just spent the last 30 some years, you know, trying to not only educate the public about this because, you know, it is a huge issue and there are more cults than ever, um, but also to really help work with survivors and, you know, help create resources for them and put people in touch with each other and, and somewhat work with families as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, I, I just, um, even that's why I write the books. That's why I give all the talks that I do, because I just feel this is such a huge issue that most of the world doesn't pay attention to.
1: Mm. Well, someone's paying attention to it. I I certainly am. Well, that's the last (laughs) question. And what about, let's say you have a friend or family member who you believe is in a cult. Is there a recommended strategy you would say now to help get that person out? Because, Again, going back to Rick Allen Ross's book, Cults Inside Out. I mean, he was big involved in the sort of cult deprogramming. I don't know if he ever kidnapped anybody, but you know, yeah. Ted Patrick, he did. <laughs> he absolutely kidnapped people, got them out. Uh, this is what happened to S- uh, Stephen Hassan. He was pretty much kidnapped by, I think, his father and some other people and deprogrammed almost forcibly. That, right. We're moving away from that model, aren't we? How do you yeah. get people out of a cult, or do you, do you even try? Is there a good strategy?
0: I think the best thing is to, uh, as much as possible, stay in touch with the person. I mean, sometimes the person's going to cut you off, and there's not much you can do about that. Mm-hmm. But I think, in whatever way you can, stay in touch with the person. If you have different people who can stay in touch with that same person, that can be helpful because you can have, you can play different roles. You know, one can play hard cop and one can play soft cop. In general, it's not good to confront the person and say, hey, you're in a cult. You know, I want to help you out the best thing you can do is, you know, sort of represent yourself as a safe haven, right? If they ever change their mind, if they ever want to come out, you're the place they can go to where they're not going to be criticized. They're not going to be judged. They can lay on the couch and sleep as long as they want to right? you're Mm -hmm. just going to welcome them because, you know, if the hardest thing in the world is to admit you were wrong, if you joined as an adult, um, to escape something that was horrific and not be able to even explain it to people if you grew up in something. Um, you know, you're giving up your entire identity and life in a sense and having to start over. And that's a very traumatic, stressful time. So the more people on the outside can be that safe haven and just stay in touch with the person. Remind them of good times. If you were someone who was friends with someone from before or the family, you know, send them postcards when you go on a trip and just say, wish you were here. Very gentle, gentle, compassionate contact. And it's really up to the person to finally make that move. Um, You know, if there, sometimes there may be subtle ways to provide them with information that might get them to start thinking something's wrong but you have to be really careful about that because you could just blow up and then they'll cut you off completely and then that's not good
1: mm-hmm. and that's what's interesting about Rick Allen Ross's model is that he doesn't attack their belief systems per se he doesn't say you know Joseph Smith was a charlatan or whatever if you're talking to a Mormon or, or something like that what he does is he go he'll take a model like yours and I think that may be why it's so helpful to have a model like the bounded Choice and he'll say let's talk about just generally, how do cults control them? Remember, I'm not talking about your group. I'm talking about just right. other groups, you know, and right. run them through the sort of the hallmarks, the highlights of the model. And eventually if they go through it enough and they want to engage, they'll, they'll come to this aha moment where they go, Oh my God, you know, that's right. my group. That's right. me, you know? So does right. that help? Do you think to, to run people through a model yeah. like your bounded choice?
0: Yeah, I mean, if they're willing to sit down and talk with you like that, um, sometimes it's good to have them watch, you know, a documentary or some Mm -hmm. movie, something about a cult, and then they'll be watching it and thinking, wait, wait wait a minute, that's what we do, right? Right, I'm in a cult. Right, I do believe that everyone even the truest believer, unless they're a, a narcissist themselves or a budding psychopath and want to be in leadership, I would say everybody has doubts, right? But you're not able to express those doubts. So you kind of store them on this. I use this metaphor of the shelf, uh-huh. you store them on the shelf in the back of your head. So if by having these, these discussions, which should be very gentle, um, you know, it might be one more thing that'll break that shelf. And once that shelf breaks, that's when they have the aha moment. And they think, oh, maybe this isn't good for me. And they think, maybe maybe I should reassess. Maybe I should get out of here. It doesn't mean they'll leave at that moment, but it'll allow them to start thinking again about something. And Uh then they can plan their escape, so to speak.
1: And you might be able to be there to assist them to escape. Exactly. Exactly. So the book is called... Escaping Utopia, growing up in a cult, getting out and starting over. So, aside from reading the book, which is a super helpful resource, if people wanted to get a hold of you or find you on social media, what would be the best place to do that?
0: Well, um, I have a website, which is um, JanyaLalich.com. So that's J A N J A L A L I C H.com. And also the, uh, the website for our courses and the other things that we're doing, consultations, whatever. Uh, courses for Therapists is at um, TBYLR.com. Take Back Your Life Recovery, TBYLR.com.
1: Mm-hmm. So, aside from getting a hold of the book, definitely check out those resources. So, thank you so much again, right. Dr. Yanya Lalich, for not only your books, but for all the work that you're doing and taking the time to speak with me.
0: All right. Thanks, Clint. I'm just really glad to be here today.